electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with Carl Quintanilla and John Fort. Today, mixed messages on crypto. A rebound this morning follows a big drop over the weekend as volatility ramps up. Who is really calling the shots here? Then closing arguments in the Apple Epic trial. We break down what a loss would mean for each side and when to expect a verdict. That's up next. Later, a preview of our annual Disruptor 50 list. That is out tomorrow. Who is this year's Airbnb or DoorDash? We discuss at the bottom of the hour, John. Yeah, and there are a lot of movers to mention this morning. HPQ, that's HP Inc., the one that makes PC, is getting upgraded. Discovery downgraded. Initiations on Tesla and Coinbase. We're going to break down all of those throughout the hour. Reasons why some might be worth buying or not. Carl? In the meantime, John, we're going to start with Bitcoin surging today after that weekend sell-off. And the market seems to be looking for a narrative we can all agree on. Mark Cuban did call it the great unwind, basically arguing that crypto investors are over-leveraged and overextended. But, of course, Cuban has also been promoting Doge. Elon Musk, critical of Bitcoin, but tweets the true battle is between fiat and crypto. And on balance, I support the latter. Of course, on balance, there's a debate about how correlated the market is to Bitcoin now. Tech sector's up more than 1% today, well off the lows from a couple of weeks ago. Listen to Ray Dalio now comparing crypto and fixed income. The more we create savings in it, the more um, you might say, I'd rather have Bitcoin than the bond. Personally, I'd rather have Bitcoin than a bond. So that's uh, Dalio, guys. It was an interview uh, recorded earlier in May, being rolled out today as part of uh, Consensus 2021. But John Dalio also says that it's the fear that governments are going to crack down on uh, Bitcoin, on crypto as a notion. He says Bitcoin's greatest risk is its success, despite <laughs> saying that he owns some. Yeah, I don't know. Is that its greatest risk? I mean, I guess the greatest risk, D, is buying uh, Bitcoin at 65000 and, you know, turning around this week and it's under 40. I mean, what bond did that badly over that period of time? Um, Between the long view and the short view, whether this is moving the market, whether it's not, the justifications, uh, comparing this to fixed income, I don't know. But I look over the past month plus and it's been like this extended downward pressure on bitcoin and yeah you know buyers are coming in and look at coinbase two to one buyers to sellers but we still got this slide i'm i'm really watching where it goes over the next few weeks and what that might mean some might also argue that the biggest risk is one man elon musk and whatever he feels like tweeting on any given day Uh, but guys larger theme here We are getting some mixed messages because while we see sort of the volatility in cryptocurrencies, we've also seen tech gain favor over the last week or so. Uh, We've seen the ARK fund that's up again today, rebounding a bit over the last week. But also some of the high growth names we talked about last week as well, they continue to gain early on this week. Carl Snowflake, Zoom, Shopify, they're all higher today, adding to that recent rebound. And as Faber just mentioned, the Nasdaq is actually outperforming 
the other indexes today. Yep, we're going to see if the Nasdaq can go green for the month, along with the Dow uh, and the S&P guys, as you well know. And it'll be an interesting week, Dee, because we're going to get some earnings from the very players that have been under some pressure, the Octas and the Snows and the CRM. So we'll know a lot more uh, by the end of the week about where the space really fits. Yeah. Why don't we start right here with our first guest this hour. That's Funstrat's Tom Lee, CBC contributor. Uh, maybe I should call you Laser Eyes, Tom Lee. You still got those in your Twitter profile. So tell us, <laughs> has your long-term thesis on cryptocurrencies, has that changed over the last few weeks? Where are you? Um, it hasn't. I mean, Bitcoin uh, volatility is sort of systematic to the network itself. So I think anybody who buys Bitcoin has to be aware it's always going to be hyper volatile. That's the opportunity, you know, and that's why people call it diamond hands. I think the real to investors to crypto, especially coming through app, you know, the Robinhood platform, et cetera, may not have been attracted to the technology or to the sound money arguments. And that's why this is a essentially a, a bit of a wake-up call for those, because I, I think when you look at where the selling's taken place, it's not from original holders of Bitcoin, but it's a lot of new accounts. Mm-hmm. Are you referring to the institutions then? And we heard this from another guest last week, that they're not really true believers. They were looking to partake in sort of this momentum, but they aren't necessarily believers in the back-end technology. Is that what you're referring to, Tom? Um, yeah, and, you know, institution is a casts a really wide net because, you know, there's family offices and there's hedge funds and CTAs and there's machines, especially now that there's liquid futures. I think a lot of uh, institutional money does trade momentum. Uh, They've got stops and they also arbitrage liquidity. So I think if I was a machine, uh, what I would have taken advantage of is is the, the amount of leverage there was in the retail accounts and the amount of either volatility you need to create or downside pressure to actually create liquidation. So, I mean, I think machines were playing it on the short side, on the institutional side. A lot of them covered. And I think that's why crypto is, is levitating this week. Tom, how do you think cryptos and, you know, I, I'm lumping Bitcoin in there. I know that there's a lot of diversity within crypto. How do you think cryptos perform in a down market? And you know the kind I'm talking about when there's not a lot of day trading going on, uh, you know, individuals are out of the game, stocks are unpopular, people turn to things like real estate. I mean, does all of crypto get liquidated under a a scenario like that and revalued? What should people prepare for? Um, John, absolutely. Uh, On a risk-off market, just like March 2020, crypto doesn't survive that because liquidity is being withdrawn and people need to raise cash and they might have margin calls in their fiat side. But that doesn't make crypto unattractive. It's the same reason people say stocks never underperform bonds over a 20-year period. You know, you have to wait 20 years for stocks to beat bonds. In crypto, in Bitcoin, you never really had to own Bitcoin more than 24 months to actually never lose money. So I think Bitcoin is hyper-volatile. That's the nature of it. But that's what creates the reward for people. And again, even though Bitcoin is in the penalty box now, I still think it can exit the year over 100,000. 100,000 by year end. Interesting, Tom. You know, uh, John Norman, who uh, runs uh, cross-asset management strategy, fundamental strategy at J.P. Morgan, is moving on today. But he has his final note. He says, I would avoid um, crypto because it entails two characteristics that other rich markets lack, a penchant for high investor leverage, 
and a questionable investment uh, thesis about the utility and efficiency of private money compared to legal tender. I mean, aren't those fundamental questions we're going to be wrestling with beyond the end of the year? Uh, oh, sure. And I know John well, uh, and I, 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 I agree with his arguments. I think what we have to remember, though, is digital money is a new concept, but it's actually going to be pretty logical in a digital economy. You know, over 70% of all GDP growth in the past decade has been digital. So I don't know if we need to be looking at money that's geographically defined or controlled by government. So I think the idea of sounder money can be created. Uh, I'm not necessarily an evangelist for, uh, you know, Bitcoin denominating things only in Bitcoin, but it makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it's also very tough for people who are used to traditional fiat systems and legacy financial architecture to kind of be open-minded about it. I think that's been a disadvantage for anyone who's been a skeptic. Tom, as we've been talking about, we've seen this volatility in the crypto markets, but we've actually seen tech gain favor again over the last week or so. Does that tell you anything? Do you think that this sort of dynamic lasts and there's more room for some of those high growth tech names to continue to rebound? Um, I mean, tech, uh, it's nice to see tech rally um, in the sense that it's such an important part of people's portfolios. And I think the future for many of these companies is great. I mean, all these companies are going to still produce double-digit growth. But from my perspective as someone who wants to recommend new money allocations, we have a hard time recommending technology to people because they already own so much of it. And it's already so widely positively viewed. There's, it's tough to have a positive surprise. And I think as the economy is reopening, it's a lot easier for people to see the pent-up demand in other parts of the economy. So I think tech, parts of tech still look really good to us, like semi-cap equipment and EMS, you know, which is moving the supply chain back to the U.S. But I think like the hyper-growth tech, it's nice to see them rally, but I, I would use that to lighten up my exposure there. Okay, Tom, thanks for your insights as always. And uh, to our audience, you heard it here first. Hanley thinks crypto could still, Bitcoin could still hit 100000 this year. We'll see you soon, Tom. Thank you. Thanks. Now, closing arguments in the Apple Epic trial, plus CNBC sells an NFT. Big hour of Tech Check, just getting started. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. click, click, click. Writer's block? Release. With Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Gut check on Coinbase. Goldman enters the fray, calls it a buy. Price target of 306, implying a 36% swing to the upside. Says the volatility in crypto 
is a positive for the platform. Shares this morning, um, as we can see, are up nearly one and a half percent, John. Yeah, just as long as volume keeps up. Uh, Micron is opening its doors to Washington this morning in an effort to address the semiconductor shortage. Elon Moy is live at the company's Virginia manufacturing plant to explain. Elon? That's right, John. I'm at Micron's fabrication facility out in Manassas, Virginia. This is one of the places where they build those memory chips that go into automobiles. So critically important right now. The company is also currently expanding this facility by over 100,000 square feet. It is a $3 billion investment that the company expects will create about 1,100 jobs by the end of the decade as it tries to ramp up to keep up with growing global demand. Now, CEO Sanjay Marota has said that he does expect the current chip shortage to last at least through the end of this year. And that's part of the driving force behind the meetings that will happen here later this afternoon between the company and Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, as well as lawmakers on Capitol Hill. They're trying to build some momentum behind a $52 billion package of funding and incentives to increase domestic semiconductor production. Now, the Senate has been poised to vote on the bill this week. It's had bipartisan support, but lately some stumbling blocks have emerged, particularly around wage requirements that could potentially jeopardize Republican support. But guys, the industry says this is one of their top priorities, and they're arguing that owning and securing the supply chain for semiconductors is not just an economic issue, but also a national security priority. Back over to you. What can you tell us about those wage requirements and how they play into this? Because it seems like government support potentially more and more important. The more we hear about, you know, countries around the world building up supply, you, you wonder what that's going to do to pricing. Yeah, so the wage requirements are related to sort of a broader provision around federal contracts that require uh, federal contracts of a certain size to pay a certain level of minimum wage and provide certain benefits. Part of the issue here is that the $52 billion in funding is getting wrapped into a even bigger package of bills that is supposed to sort of define the way that Washington sees competition with China and the rest of the world um, for decades down the road. So some of these wage requirements would apply more broadly than just the semiconductor space. And certainly Republicans are arguing that many of the jobs here at factories like this one, you know, pay well above the local minimum wage. So it's really not an issue for this industry. But because this is being wrapped into a bigger legislative package, of course, you're going to see politics at play. In the meantime, Elon, um, it, it, this is still remains a longer term story and doesn't appear to offer as many exit ramps off of the, the current shortage in the cycle we're in right now. Yeah, so this is an acknowledgement by the industry that, you know, figuring out the current supply chain crunch is really going to have to happen within the private sector. You know, it takes several months to manufacture these chips, as long as six months lead time in some cases. So Washington won't be able to step in quickly enough, but they want to make sure that this doesn't happen in the future. And that's really what the goal of this legislation is, to prevent these kinds of disruptions in the supply chain from happening in the future, because we're seeing the... Uh, economic and national security impact play out right here in America. Yeah, it seems like there's a, a, several new headlines every day on that front. Elon, thank you. Uh, Elon Mui uh, joining us on Micron, and we'll talk to Marotra later on this afternoon. In the meantime, closing arguments in the Apple Epic trial have now begun. Following Tim Cook's testimony from last week, CNBC contributor, co-founder of Recode, Kara Swisher, is back with us, Kara, as we're now in that mode where we're trying to read the judge's thoughts 
Um, yeah. I wonder if there was anything you, you'd lean from yes, last week's action. Uh, well, sometimes she seemed as if she was in Apple's favor, sometimes in Epic. So I don't know, actually, from reading it. I think they both made their cases and they're both they both made good points. They both made points about each other, scored points on each other. And so I don't really know. I think this judge is trying to sort of go down the middle, if I if I had to guess of all the various things, if I had to pick. And I'm not sure what that means. Um, I think she understood the safety arguments, and I think at the same time she understands the marketplace argument from Epic. Um, so I suspect there's going to be some sort of um, regulatory sc- uh, scheme work here that's going to be in place or some sort of ruling that requires them to behave in a certain way or with some transparency. That would be the best outcome, I think, for, for as most people think about how they want to use the App Store going forward. Hmm. Did you agree with any of the coverage that argued Cook's testimony was unexpectedly revealing? Um, no, I think he's like that. I think he talks about it. I think he revealing in what way I, I, that, that you think he, he was talking about his business. Why shouldn't he? I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't a, a lot of it. Go ahead. A lot of it pertains to, say, the the share of uh, of the market uh, for the app store in the U.S. or internationally. Yeah. Some I don't know, some metrics that maybe some people hadn't heard before. Well, that's okay. Why shouldn't Apple do that? I mean, they're they're doing really well in this area, and I think the best case here is to make their case and why they're an important part of the ecosystem, and that there are ways to control it that's beneficial for both the developers and Apple. That's their best argument. Now, look, a judge could say, forget it. This is a monopoly, um, and you have to let them do what they want, including in-app purchases. But I think this judge has a sense that that might be a little chaotic, and that again is Apple's best argument. The question is, do they need that much money for security? And I think that's the best argument Epic has is that they're making enormous amounts of money here. And so uh, do they need that? Is, does, it, does it have to be that safe? And I don't mean that in a, in a joking way, is that it, this is a lot of uh, profits they make from this uh, store, as well as helping developers create businesses. But they, they're, it's not like they're hurting and being, you know, this is not a charity. This is not the Apple charity. And so I didn't think so. I thought it was he's making his case and that's what he should do. Kara, if this was a dress rehearsal for another mm-hmm. courtroom battle for Apple, and that is versus Spotify, which many think is a stronger yeah. case, how do you think Apple will come out of this trial from a reputational PR standpoint to sort of set it in that one? Well, it's been a bad couple of weeks. The New York Times report on China and the compromises the company has to make in China weren't great. This trial sort of shows that it's a, you know, Apple sort of has the white hat of all the tech companies, and it's not quite as white as it was before. Um, I think the Spotify case is a really significant one because they're in businesses that compete with each other. And I think that's really, uh, I think that's really going to be something uh, to talk about. And how do you, how does Apple get into businesses? Because apps are in, what businesses could it get into where it doesn't compete with its developers? And I think that's a really good argument. And so I would think the Spotify, this is about payments, right? This is about who gets to decide who has payments and control maybe over data, which is a bigger uh, question. And in this case, Apple can give a little bit, I suspect. In Spotify, this is at the heart, you know, Apple music is really important. Apple, enter- the entertainment stuff, as much as we scoff at it, is really important. Um, and so how they get into other businesses uh, that are adjacent to what their business is and is growing is going to be a, is a big question. And so Spotify, mm-hmm. to me, is the real case. Kara, uh, the critical issue to me in this case is mm-hmm. the monopoly question. Because on yeah. the face of it, uh, Apple's got less market share than Android. You can get Spotify. You can get 
Fortnite yeah. on lots of different platforms. It, it's not a classic monopoly, but the question yeah. is, is the iPhone a closed enough ecosystem that it qualifies as a monopoly even though it's small? It, or do people stay because of loyalness, loyalty or mm. because of like stickiness and this walled garden idea? I mean, it seems to me that's a big part of what the judge has to consider, right? Yeah, it's hard, though, because you kind of live in the Apple universe or the Android universe, right? You just do. You live in that particular country. And it, you can leave and go to the other country. You just don't want to, right? I think there's they have a good argument that, hey, go over there. You use whatever, the Xbox, whatever you want to use to play these things. And it's really, you really don't because you are in your system, but you're not forced to be in your system. And so it's a really, it's a really big question when there's two companies that dominate, you know, that's the, these duopolies, especially like in online advertising with Facebook and Google, um, you know, search is very clear. Google dominates. Right. And so and, and Amazon has a similar argument to make. There's lots of retailers out there, not just us. That said, it dominates in some way that's really hard to fight. And so that's going to be a very difficult question for this judge, because they, it is certainly not a walled garden. But you if you're in the Apple universe, you have to live in the Apple universe. You just, like I said, don't have to live there even though you want to. Does that make sense? <laughs> you know, it's not it's <laughs> yes. not the, it's not our old monopoly company towns where you can only buy the bread from the one store. That's not the case here, but it kind of is. So, I don't know. I don't make any uh, it's sense. It's actually a, interesting. Problem. Yeah. It's a segue to uh, your op-ed on AT&T and Discovery Care. Yeah. You write that companies like AT&T mostly have a cautious investor pool that demands sure things with few downsides. Mm -hmm. Big tech companies, you write, have an aggressive investor base that tolerates big swings. Faber talked to Malone, of course, a big part of that pool, who talked about it being a brave corporate decision. Take a listen. John Stanky showed a hell of a lot of courage in making this decision at this time because he, he found himself really chasing two capital-intensive, very competitive uh, rabbits. And I think his, his idea to uh, refocus AT&T on, on their primary traditional business and allowing other management to pursue with a different balance sheet uh, the direct consumer opportunity was a brave decision. Meanwhile, Kara, you say it's persuasive, the case yeah. that Stanky is the worst media strategist in recent memory. Well, recent memory. There's been so many, Carl. Um, I think that uh, that's <laughs> brave. Gosh, wow, that's something to say. You know what I mean? You're brave to get out of, I don't know, I just, you could make so many metaphors here for wars and things like that. He got them into this mess and he pulled them out of it. But I don't know if he's pulled them out of it correctly. And that was the argument I was making is that even pulling out here, the Discovery, a, a Time Warner combination is not big enough. It's just not not to fight uh, what's coming from tech. And tech can just sit out and wait this thing. And so there has to be giant tech companies. And I'm surprised there aren't other bidders here. I thought there might be, including Comcast. Uh, maybe they have antitrust worries. But that's, the, that's yesterday's war. What's going to happen is fighting with the Amazons, the Googles, the apples of the world. And so they are ill-equipped because, you know, Facebook doesn't have one platform. It has Facebook. It has Instagram. It has WhatsApp. You know, Google doesn't just have one platform. It has Google. It has YouTube. It could buy other things. Facebook also has Oculus. Um, Apple has all kinds of ways to, 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 to satisfy media concerns. And so my worry is that this is too small. It's too small a thing. And all the media people, and I, I have huge respect for John Malone, by the way, 
in the way he's conducted his businesses. He's just, you know, he's look at his record. It's astonishing. But in this case, I don't know if it's a brave decision to go backwards, I guess, to retreat. Yeah, it's a brave decision to retreat when you made a mistake by going forward. I would have continued to go forward uh, in that regard. But I see I see why he did it for sure. Hmm. Uh, Fascinating. We're going to see how it it, it unfolds, Kara. It's a good piece, even as the tequila once again steals your shot in the background. I got more. <laughs> I got more. I'm I'm sorry, you do. I'm, I'm a time girl. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know how to explain that to you anymore. <laughs> Kara, thanks. We'll talk to you later. Thank you. Still to come on the show, our annual CNBC Disruptor 50 list takes center stage this week. That's next. Plus, watch shares of Virgin Galactic. Another surge this morning following a successful space flight test over the weekend. Shares are currently up, wow, nearly 15%, up 45% over the last week. Tech Check returns in just three minutes. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Resetting here at the bottom of the hour. Good Monday morning. Welcome to another hour of uh, Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston. We got the Nasdaq up uh, strong today. Uh, S&P back above 4,200, 1% gain. Uh, Nasdaq's looking to avoid its fifth negative session in six. Best five performers on the index on your screen right now. In the meantime, let's get a news update. Rahel Solomon has that for us. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. There is increasing international support for a global minimum tax rate for corporations. Financial Times reporting the G7 countries are close to an agreement on a tax rate of at least 15 percent. The FT says that the deal could be announced as early as Friday. Shares of Virgin Galactic are soaring 14 percent in the wake of the company's successful return to space. It's the first manned space flight from the company's new spaceport in New Mexico. Exxon says that it will add two new directors, including one with climate experience. Activist hedge fund Engine Number no. 1 has proposed four new board members to address what it calls weak governance and a lack of a plan to address climate change. And just in time for Memorial Day weekend, gasoline prices are on the rise. The Lumberg survey says that the average pump price is up eight cents over the last two weeks to $3.05 a gallon. That's $1.05 more expensive than this time last year. So the good news is the unofficial start to summer is upon us. The bad news is gas prices are higher. John, I'll send it back to you. Uh, thanks, Rahel. A little disruption there on the wallet. Speaking of which, CNBC's annual Disruptor 50 list is out tomorrow. It's not a subjective exercise. There are about 1,500 startup nominees for the list. 50 made it. CNBC's team filtered for sales, user growth, employee growth, fundraising, and investor quality, and then looked at some more subjective factors, too. Julia Borston has a preview of some numbers and new faces. Julia. Well, John, there's lots of room for new faces this year because of a record number of companies that graduated from last year's list. Now, once they're no longer private, they no longer qualify for the Disruptor 50 list. Now, 12 companies from last year's list have gone public, including some consumer-facing names such as Airbnb, Affirm, and DoorDash. There are two healthcare companies that went public, including GoodRx, two insurance companies, and three enterprise software companies, including Snowflake, the biggest IPO 
of the bunch. Now, there were also, um, none of those companies joined the equal-weighted CNBC Disruptor 50 Index. That index is up about 77% over the past 12 months compared to the 48% gains for the NASDAQ. Now, in addition to all of those IPOs, there were two acquisitions, Cabbage and Beauty Counter. There were also a number of SPACs, four pending SPACs, Better, Ginkgo, Grab, and SoFi. Now, this year's list, which we'll unveil tomorrow morning, was the most competitive list yet with over 1,500 nominations for those 50 spots, guys. Uh, and Julia, how much did COVID factor into the definition of disruption, I guess, with last year's list and this year's list? Well, look, last year's list was a very complicated one. We had already received our nominations um, that had, you know, everything had already been submitted by the time uh, COVID was, was declared a pandemic and global lockdown started. So uh, after that point, after about a month of the pandemic, we asked the companies to submit more information to tell us about how they were adapting to the pandemic. So there are really two data sets for last year's list. In a lot of ways, this year is a little bit more straightforward. The question is not how are you dealing with disruption pre-COVID and post-COVID. Now we are in this new hybrid world. People are working from home. They're working remotely. People are trying to figure out how to be um, useful tools and, and to offer disruptive technologies to consumers and to businesses in this new world that we're living in. Mm. So, John, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how some of these technologies are used as we emerge um, from these stay-at-home orders and people start to get out and about in the world more. Um, but I think the question of how you continue to innovate, continue to disrupt as the world around you changes is as central as ever. Now, Julia, um, my family got a kitten earlier this year. We sometimes call her our fur baby. This is your list baby. Can't mention Disruptor 50. I mean, you started Disruptor 50. How many years ago was it and has it become so far what you expected? Well, thank you, John. This is my list, baby. It is so much fun to work on this list. And this is our ninth annual list. So we really started working on it about 10 years ago. My intention with, it, with this list was to identify companies that would be massive in the future, but were still private, to really identify the cutting edge themes and trends that were forcing the big incumbent giants to change and we're really changing the way we all live our lives. So it has become even more fun and exciting and gratifying to do every year. And I have to say, I read so many of these nominations and there were so many people at CNBC involved in grading these nominations and going through all these metrics. And I'm so grateful that so many people at CNBC have come on board in making, making this a reality and even bigger part of our coverage every year. That's right, lots of people burped it, but it's still your baby, Julia, thanks. Uh, be sure to catch our live stream, meanwhile, on the Disruptor 50. Uh, that is uh, coming up tomorrow night after the full reveal, 6 p.m. Eastern on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and CNBC.com. Deirdre. I can't wait to see it. I was hoping you guys might give us a little bit of a clue, but we'll continue to guess. Coming up, Facebook writes a CNBC op-ed. We discuss it next. Meantime, keep your eye on Tesla. Wells initiates at equal weight with a price target of 590 expecting vehicle deliveries to surprise in the near term. Tesla up today more than 3%. Tech Check is back in two. Facebook's vice president of global affairs, Nick Clegg, penning an op-ed on CNBC.com this morning. Clegg looking at the future of the internet regulations 
and areas where we may see bipartisan compromise. He says the renewed interest in regulations is, quote, a good thing, and regulation is long overdue. Facebook recently uh, creating their own Supreme Court to regulate content, but have often looked and asked for outside guidance in the past when it came to making decisions about content, particular areas where Clegg says that progress can be made. Well, Section 230 for one, protection against influence operations, privacy legislation and rules on data portability. Finally, guys, he says the U.S. should create a new digital regulator. Carl and John, these aren't particularly new. We know that Facebook has sort of embraced more regulation, especially since Nick Clegg joined. But I wonder, guys, is this a sideshow? How much can you really do without addressing the core business model, which is what critics often point to? The business model is optimized to keep people scrolling, to lead to viral content. And can these regulations really change that, John? I do not expect Nick Clegg to be writing about that. (laughs) But I think, Carl, we are witnessing kind of the post-Trump policy ecosystem online, right? We're back to that old mode of Congress and legislators being addressed by these pieces. You can see it clearly. Facebook saying, hey, we like smart regulation. It's good. Hey, be careful of China over there. We don't want that model. Here are the ways that we can all come together. And you get companies doing what Congress has such a hard time doing, speaking with one voice and kind of pushing everybody in one direction. We'll see if they're able to move the needle, Carl, the way they want to. Yeah, I mean, it's not an encouraging read, guys, uh, by any means. He talks about China, as John suggests, but also Vietnam and Turkey and Russia and other countries where we're beginning to see serious changes in the way sovereigns see uh, social media. He says the U.S., risks becoming a nation that exports incredible technologies, D, but fails to export its values. Yeah, certainly pointing to the tech giants, John, which we know that Facebook and some of the other tech giants like to do, um, in that perhaps there's not a Yahoo waiting in the wings, but these broader Chinese tech giants with perhaps different policies. Mm. Um, so it's a convenient argument. Um, but I agree with you, Carl. There wasn't a whole lot that was super encouraging, and there's still a long way to go. Yeah, well, you've got to have a little bit of concern so that we can go into the arms of tech for comfort. All right. All right. Again, head over to CNBC.com to read the full op-ed. Meantime, gut check on Beyond Meat. Hmm. Bernstein, double upgrades the stock this morning, says reopening should drive demand and an upswing. Price target there, 130. We are back in a moment. Ten years ago today, CNBC lost a friend when Mark Haynes died. He was a fixture at this network from the day he from the day it launched until the day he passed away. He's remembered for a lot of things, but certainly for the Haynes bottom when he called the low in the S and P 500 on March 10th, 2009. Come on, everyone, we've been waiting for this. I think we're at a bottom. I really do. In honor of Mark, we're auctioning an NFT of that famous call. From 09, uh, we're also selling a set amount of tokens for anyone who doesn't want to participate in the auction. It's all online now at mintable.app slash CNBC. It ends at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday morning. All proceeds go to Autism Speaks, which was a favorite charity of Mark's, and the Council for Economic Education, which focuses on financial literacy. Go to mintable.app slash CNBC. By the way, it's a carbon neutral event. We're purchasing some offset credits from a firm called Ariel to make sure, D, that this does not have a negative impact on the environment. And what a call that was, Carl. I'm on the site right now. You can either buy it with Ether 
or good old U.S. dollars. Coming up, the stock impact of an Apple loss in the Epic case. That's next. The Street's top analyst weighs in. Plus, watch HPQ gets an upgrade at City to buy increases its forecast for PC shipments. Although it still likes Dell as its top pick in the sector, HPQ up more than 2% today. A lot more tech checks still ahead. Stay with us. As we mentioned, today's closing arguments for the Apple Epic trial. And with us now on the verdict's long-term impact on the stock is the street's number one Apple analyst, Bernstein's Tony Sakanagi. Tony, good to have you. I, I can't help but think back. A decade ago, we had the Apple-Samsung trial. And there were similar thoughts about the long-term impact there. The idea, the bum rap on Apple was, hey, they're trying to patent a rounded rectangle. The trial exposed just how close a Galaxy is to an iPhone. This is commoditized. Uh, Apple's margins won't hold up, but they have, haven't they? Uh, they have. And, and ultimately, you know, it's there aren't many periods in history where lawsuits have changed the fortunes of technology companies. Now, we're in a new era. Uh, we're seeing a lots of lawsuits targeted at uh, the largest technology companies. So it'll be interesting to see ultimately how this plays out. And I think even historically, we can go back to the Microsoft ruling um, and debate whether that ultimately had a big impact. I think it did allow more competitors to come into the marketplace. Microsoft is still a juggernaut today. Um, so the next few years, not only with this case around the App Store, but about the DOJ's investigation into Google and its payments to Apple, there's parallel legislation happening in Europe with Spotify around the App Store. These will be, you know, these will be defining in terms of how they might shape the competitive landscape. But I doubt mm. that they're going to upend Apple fundamentally from a financial perspective. Yeah, I guess the Microsoft thing, it reminds me of, you know, wandering around in the wilderness for a generation. They certainly had some years there where they weren't as aggressive. But when it comes to Apple, is it more about the vertical integration that they've had over this period of time, the cash hoard that they have, the optionality they have to pursue various strategies and the loyalty of the customer base? Are those the things that investors might consider as hedges against any individual negative outcome here? Yeah, I, I think so. Look, Apple makes great products and they have a passionate user base. And ultimately, at the end of the day, that's why it's such a terrific company. Uh, is it really is this sort of branded, high quality, premium consumer company. And, you know, investors often joke if Apple came out with branded toilet paper, you know, folks would run out and buy it because it's made by Apple. Um, and of course, that's facetious, but it underscores the, you know, the, the brand strength and the reputation for quality products and services that Apple's developed. And, and that's at the core of what investors buy into and at the core of its valuation. Right. And Tony, we've had a number of companies and CEOs come out in Apple's defense of those App Store commissions, App Levin, Zenga. We had uh, Snap's Evan Spiegel last week. Does that help Apple, especially as you referred to, you know, the next battle will be Spotify. And that, many do say, is going to be more critical and less easy for Apple to make its arguments. Well, look, I think it's very difficult to handicap a legal outcome. We can say a few things. Um, we know what the size of the App Store is today. It's significant. It's over $20 billion in revenue. Uh, that's 5% of Apple's total. But it could amount for up to 20% of profit. So if it, if it disappeared, which it won't, 20% um, of Apple's products uh, profits would be at risk. 
Now, that said, I, I think realistically, again, very difficult to handicap the outcome. But, but the other thing we do know is that this litigation will likely take years to resolve itself. It may ultimately go to the Supreme Court. And, um, you know, this will be one in a number of potential litigation uh, battles that Apple will be facing. Um, look, I think our, our personal opinion is it's difficult to handicap what the initial ruling is. But if we were to sort of guess what a negative ruling would be, it, it would likely be something about needing to open up uh, the app store to, to either allow other payment systems or to allow other app stores. That's something Google has done. It hasn't been at a huge detriment to Google. Um, but I, I think realistically, if, if, if the case were to find that Apple had monopolistic behavior and that was being abused, that would likely be the ultimate remedy. Again, it may take years to get there. Um, but if we play that out, I'm still not sure that that has a material adverse financial consequence for Apple. Tony, it's interesting. I, I, I know you've never been effusive about the stock, but you sound net constructive, certainly. I also wanted to ask you about the new privacy ad campaign, which rolled out last week, where uh, it shows the advantages, at least Apple would argue, of opting out on ad tracking. They add a little padlock to that Apple logo that you see at the end of the ad. I wonder what do you think that does to the marginal buyer of an iPhone? Well, look, I, I think um, to some degree, Apple has been very vocal in its privacy stance uh, over the last decade. Uh, it's been a key tenant of what Tim Cook has espoused and, and fairly consistent, consistently. Now, there's, there's some debate about how much of that is, is truly altruistic and how much of that is for, for Apple's well-doing. But, but certainly, we can say objectively that they've been very consistent on privacy um, and I think they're, you know, quite frankly, trying to extend that to uh, more broadly and, and more vocally. Now, Carl, on your comment about, you know, the effusiveness towards the stock, um, we did have a, a buy rating on Apple for uh, eight or nine years. Uh, we've been a hold rating for the last couple of years. A lot of that has been valuation. And the stock has come in some. It's underperformed by 15%. Uh, this year, earnings have gone up a lot. And so the, the forward earnings multiple has gone from over 30 to 23. So we think risk reward is starting to get better on Apple. We still don't think it's terrific in light of the fact that next year can be tough. But, but on balance, when you have a, a stock go from a 32 multiple to a 23 multiple, you know, investors and, and ourselves always need to continue to look at that and, and, be, and be open to that. Interesting, Tony. Uh, like, love to see the evolution of your thinking, and we'll, we'll watch it from here. We'll talk to you next time, Tony. Thanks. Tony Saganaki. Thanks very much for having the S&P is right around uh, 4,200. Don't go away. I think Bitcoin is hyper-volatile. That's the nature of it, but that's what creates the reward for people. And again, even though Bitcoin is in the penalty box now, I still think it can exit the year over 100,000. That was Tom Lee with us earlier saying that Bitcoin will go to $100,000. And before the end of the year, John, it's currently just above 37000 But that's why we call him Tom Laser Eyes Lee, right? <laughs> he said it could. He said it could. And Carl, I, I love these, <laughs> these kind of discussions, ideas as a way of focusing on issues. Not a prognostication here. 
But the question in my head, is it more likely to go to 20,000 or 100,000 to touch that level by the end of the year? I think 20,000, Carl. Yeah, well, Tom is, uh, has made his name off of being able to read momentum signals, and that's clearly the kind of environment where w- that would lead you to a call about Bitcoin in either direction. And obviously, Tom's now uh, not uh, ruling out anything to the high side. Uh, in the meantime, SPAC fever, as you may know by now, is cooling off a bit. The journal says that uh, startup CEOs are now spurning the once popular road to public listings. There are stories of CEOs inundated with Pitches from deal-hungry SPAC sponsors who are struggling to find deals right now and then struggling to sell those deals to investors. Why? A big part, of course, is simply price performance. Uh, 44 tech startups have closed SPAC deals since January. They've fallen 12.8% on average, according to the University of Florida. The CNBC SPAC post-deal ETF tells a similar story, down more than 16% year-to-date. It would be interesting, D, if, in fact... Um, this was no longer seen as the number one go-to option in terms of buyouts. Yeah, I think that reputation getting a little bit hit in that article. More than 400 SPACs searching for startups. That is the large number. There's lots of startups out there, but you got to wonder, when does this all come home to roost, Carl? Yeah. In the meantime, guys, we'll keep our eyes peeled for the enterprise software earnings that are coming our way this week. For now, let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.